Welcome everyone to the special edition of Kiwi Talks. I am speaking to the legendary and underrated composers of the English dub of Dragon Ball Z, which are Mike Smith, Scott Morgan, and Julius DeBosch. How are you guys doing? Great, man. Yeah? Yeah, doing well. That's good. That's good. I just wanted to double check that your mental health is all good, given the pandemic that we're going through right now, that you guys are all healthy, you're staying safe, staying yeah. away from people who are coughing. <laughs> Doing our yeah, best. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. Don't be stupid. Mm -hmm. Wear your mask. Wear yeah. the mask. That's the advice. So tell me how this all started. Uh, we better start with you, Mike, because you're the, the OG of this. You're the one that started it all. Um, and from what I understand, it was your gear that you were using originally when you were when you started composing the soundtrack for Dragon Ball Z. It was mostly your samples. Well, I, uh, it, it was a mix. I, I was using a sampler called what uh, Roland S seventy. Is that what it was? Seven sixty. Seven sixty. That that uh, was a standard for Bruce uh, Faulkner. And, it was a standard in the also, industry. But I, I brought in uh, uh, what's called an Alesis QS6 to the situation, and I used that a lot. So a lot of the early sound uh, does come off of just the the straight off the shelf uh, Alesis QS6. Right. And then you know. Because I've I've heard that I've heard your stuff in your little band, and it's quite different to what you composed initially from the get go. My little band. Well, sorry, <laughs> not your little band. Your band, I should say. <laughs> I'm kidding with you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I do use one patch on the QS6 with the uh, safety meeting. Uh, it's called the uh, 74 square. Right. That one quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, but with Dragon Ball Z, there were there were many, many more QS6 patches that got into uh, into the sound. Were you given much direction from Bruce or from uh, Funimation at all? Or, okay, well, this is something Scott and I disagree about. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, right. Not disagree, but I, I actually trust Scott's memory more on this. But uh, apparently, we did get a lot of direction from Funimation. We got like scripts that uh, told us what to write, what they wanted to have in each scene. Now, I I think I didn't pay them much money. Uh, is that fair to say, Scott? Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, so we did get some direction, but I kind of just watched the scenes and did what I wanted. I did the directions, uh, you know. They were actually so detailed that it was impossible to follow. Like, if you if you think the score was crazy and switched on a dime too much, what they asked for was even worse. Uh, and they knew it was ridiculous. They were just like trying to give as much because I talked to the guys at one point about it, and they, they and said I, that they knew that it was good. I, I, I have very very little recollection of ever referring to notes in the script. I would mostly watch what was on screen. It was all new to me. You know, every time that we'd get a new chase tape, it was like, this is a brand new episode to me. He'd watch it and, you know, plan out the, the job and, uh, and go for it. 
which usually I think worked out pretty well. So is that how all three of you did it when you were scoring? You'd score to the screen? Oh, yes. Yeah. Mostly. Uh, there were times when we wrote music just for a character or for even just like, like before Garlic Jr.'s uh, saga hit, we didn't have any tapes. So I printed out pictures from the internet. There's a site called planetnamic.com that doesn't exist anymore, but uh, I printed out pictures of all the characters and the, the, what, was, what was called the demon mist back then because uh, Funimation hadn't invented the term Blackwater Mist yet. And uh, so we wrote music just based on those pictures or just based on what we wanted to write. And then when we finally got the shows, we applied these beds of music to the episodes that we got, which we, they didn't even give us the English dub at first. We were, uh, we were scoring to the Japanese dub for, for the first little bit. Oh, right. The same, same thing applies uh, to the Ginyu saga a little bit because we'd come up, I, I, I guess I came up with the, a bunch of ideas before we'd ever even seen the, the cartoon. Uh, that then once we had it and we had chase tapes, we had some film to write to that it was like, oh, well, this piece might work in here on the scene or whatever. So that was that was a, a good part of what went into the Ganyu saga. Because well, maybe it was useful sometimes, though, because um, I didn't know the show until I started working on it. And um, even though I think we were all scoring to the picture and just watching the episode and, and trying to hit the mood and characters and whatnot, but sometimes the script clarified a few things for me. Not even not just the script, but the director's notes on the script. You know, you can attack this, the same scene in two, five million different ways, but um, to me, always there was a little bit of a, okay, this is how I would like to do it, but let's just check to make sure the script agrees with me kind of thing. So almost like a confirmation type of thing. I, I did, did check the script, but but otherwise I think we're all just scoring to, to this, the scenes basically. Right. So how do you guys write? Do you think of something in your head, like a melody in your head? Do you start with a chord progression? Like how do you guys go about composing something? I think we all do it differently. I would mm. assume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I it, imagine depends it, on the piece. it depends on the piece for me. Like I compose differently for many different, you know, like one scene I might do it one way, another scene I might do it totally different way. So, uh, yeah, sometimes it starts with chords, sometimes it starts with melody, sometimes it starts with a drum beat, you know, or just an idea of, of instruments or, yeah, it, it whatever hits me first, you know, I kind of go with that. With, and with Dragon Ball and with the TV schedule, usually I had the strategy of, okay, what do I know that's going to work? for the scene because we didn't have a lot of time. So there wasn't a lot of time to experiment. And if I had an idea that I thought was going to absolutely work, that was simple to do, then I would do that. Because how, how I, I want to I, I add to that also that uh, for me, and I think for the other two guys here too, uh, that personally, one of the most important things that I took out of, of my college education was that as a composer, you should always be original. You don't redo somebody else's work, right? Mm. And uh, and so it always would start from there. What's what's something what's something that sounds new and original, you know? And then move on from that. To me, it's it's also different because um, composition-wise, I I tend to I, I try to 
hear the whole piece the way I would like it to sound. And I rarely build it up from an idea, but rather I have the idea with the instrumentation, with the orchestration, um, kind of how I feel like it would work for the scene. And I just try to recreate what's in my head as opposed to, you know, like adding this, adding that and taking away. For me, there was just not enough time to experiment so much. Um, and also the sounds to me, that's, that's a, that was always a big factor. And that's, I think we talked about this before, uh, in, in an interview or somewhere that, um, that uh, we all wished we had had more time uh, to design even more interesting sounds, or even more unique sounds uh, for for you know, let's just create instruments and, and create interesting patches and stuff. But um, but often we defaulted back to the you know the characteristic sounds of of DBs, and I really wish we could have taken it farther, but that takes time. Um, but once in a while, when there was a little weekend or a little break, then you know a sound came out of a synth that like really worked for a character. Now let's play around with that sound, and that became uh, a piece. Mm. Yeah, that's that was fun. One time, uh, uh, Mike went to the hardware store and bought a bunch of stuff, um, and we had a we had a recording fest in the in the studio. <laughs> like, I think we recorded some sheet metal strips. Going, wah, 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 wah. you hear those in the uh, cell Android and cell saga? I think. Yeah. And then, and then we recorded me playing a violin doing squeaky sounds. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing the, the, <laughs> the variety of sounds that you can get out of a violin. And I, so, you yeah, Scott, speak to that for well. a second. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you get glissandos, beep, 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 bits. I mean, what? tell us about it, Scott. It was really your idea to bring in the violin. Oh, I had been watching uh, Cartoon Network, Powerpuff Girls, and a lot of other silly things on there and i was hearing a lot of those violin sounds so really it was just we were just kind of just ripping them off um <laughs> but it but was yes. great we, we did make a collection of you know little snippets and stuff that could be worked into songs that where it was appropriate did you yeah, use so right? we, did you use it a lot for like um comedy segments yeah Episodes? more yeah. for comedy yeah. than anything else yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, I yeah we Mike added a lot whenever you see bulma blinking blink, blink, like that's that's not Mike, a sound effect. That's that's actually part of the music soundtrack. <laughs> that Mike went to town with those samples. It was really funny to to hear all of it. I you loved know? it. I had a lot he of fun. Would, with he that. would take he would take one of my slides and he would pitch it way down, and you hear like, whoa, <laughs> so much weird crap. That's <laughs> fun. That's or, cool. Reaper, reaper, <laughs> And somebody was turning their head. Reaper, reaper. <laughs> I, I, I'm weird like that though. I remember there was there was one time where Scott was like, I need to replay this guitar part because there's too many fret noises in there. And I'm like, no, no, fret noises are the best part, man. Remember that? Yeah, yeah I do. You and Bruce both ganged up on me on that. It's like guitar oh, yeah. players. Oh my God. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing is you three have very different styles, but it was so seamless in the way the the way the soundtrack was done that it it sounded like it was one person so how did you make sure yeah how did you make sure you kept the continuity there i think that, i, I, think I can definitely did. tell who, who wrote what actually a lot of things are are reused we had a huge library of the previously composed music and previous pieces made it into pretty much every show um and so edited in 
yeah, so that mm -hmm. that was like a lot of musical editing, and and of course sometimes we added layers and whatnot, expanded on all their all their pieces, and edited it in a way that it would not be like just like in your face the old old piece, but but I think that's that's that work kind of as a glue, um, and that kind of brought all the, the different components together. I remember um, in the Boo saga, uh, Mike and I. Sometimes we'll discuss like who's gonna work on which character, which scene um, for the same show, and and then we decided like okay, we're gonna edit something in in between, like a like a, a transition type of thing from an older piece that that was in our library, and so we knew whoever was doing the first piece kind of how to flow into that transition and how to come out of that, and the other person would continue with the new piece. So it's not that like we actually sat down and wrote together. We worked in separate studio rooms as well, but uh, but we kind of knew what the what the goal was on the timeline. And so we just kind of filled in um, our parts and, and keep that in mind. What were the sounds to to use? That was actually a, a big challenge. I don't know if you guys even remember this, but or, or I don't even know if I actually ever talked about this. But when I came on board, I still remember that um, um, Mike was like, well, we have to use those sounds. And it's like, yeah, but I have my own instruments. I want to use these because my strings sound better. <laughs> kind of and, I'm sure uh, they did. <laughs> and they, and, you know, that's the thing that they did, but they sound a little bit too good. Um, right. If, if you just go by the quality of the sample, but that wasn't really what the, sh the show necessarily needed. So so I ended up um, adapting a lot, of the, a lot of the sounds. And, you know, I had a QS um, in, in my studio room there. And... And of course, the seven the, the seven sixty sampler. Uh, so some of the things, some of the instruments that we used were also shared. Then then the samples we shared too, like we passed around the the samples from the seven sixty. Um, so we used the same modified Marcado string that had the attack chopped off because it was too late, and you know the, these kind of things. Like we we solved and we were used, but then we also brought in our unique um, kind of elements, and and that included gear and also compositional approach. And so I think that what what Julius was just talking about with having sort of a shared library of sounds that and the fact that we were editing, you know, transitions or pieces in, I think that that probably did help it to be a consistent feel throughout the uh, the sagas. You mentioned that how rushed you were for time. Like how much time did you actually have from the minute you got an episode? How much time did you actually have till it had to be finished? Well, okay, we would do as many as three episodes a week, which is 21 minutes per episode. Let's wow. basically say wow. it could be 60 minutes of episode due at the end of the week. That was like max speed, though. Yeah. Right. And that was, it was not always that that pace, but uh, yeah, it could get the average. Average would be like three days, maybe. Uh, because I remember often the chase tape came late, and of course they still wanted to pick it up on time, and and like we're losing time with every minute that we're not receiving the the tape that had the that had the version that we're scoring. Um, so I, I think the average would be like three days, and sometimes we knew about the characters that we that were coming on in in the next episode, so we would kind of start writing maybe a character theme and get it ready um, for actual scoring. Yeah. Yeah. When I first came on, I was just doing editing, and it usually took me about two days to do an episode. If we, if and and then if because uh, I wasn't writing yet, but if we needed new music, I would throw something. Say, hey, I need music for this scene, Mike, and then he would write something. And usually, in two or three days, we could put it together. 
but there were uh, more difficult episodes that took a week or uh, or maybe even longer. But yeah, yeah, I'd say I agree. Three days is probably about average because most episodes took about two or three days. And then, yeah, there was tougher ones that took a little bit longer. But And, and sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd get multiple episodes at the same time. So it's like a little bit of overlap, you know, between a couple of guys, you know, on those days. Too. Yeah, and we didn't so know. I might be order. writing a piece for this episode while Scott's, you know, editing out this stuff and coming up with, hey, I need a new piece for this part while I'm still working on the previous episode or something like that, right? And yeah, when I first got there, uh, I remember the first three or four episodes I did were a little bit out of order too. So we didn't always necessarily do them in the order that you see them. Oh, so you could be editing episodes out of out of sync. So they yeah. might not be the three episodes in a row. They could be all out of order. Yeah, like but let's when I be start... real. Uh, how how much difference was there between episode seventy six and episode seventy seven? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's Especially true. in the Frieza saga. But yeah, right. like my first episode, my first episode was number seventy eight. But I didn't work on seventy nine or eighty at all. I think my second one was eighty one or eighty two. Uh, so yeah, there, there's an example of how it skipped around hmm. right from the beginning when I first started. I want to ask you uh, about a few different pieces uh, individually, but I'll start with you, Mike, in terms of Vegeta's stuff, which is pretty iconic, the Hell's Bells and the Super Saiyan um, themes. What was your approach when you started writing them? Well, I mean, Vegeta, he's arguing... Arguably the best character in Dragon Ball Z, right? Because he's so complicated. Yeah, I agree. So it was, you know, a little bit evil, but a little bit triumphant, right? Mm. Now, uh, for specifically for Vegeta Super Saiyan, the idea that I thought of there when I was watching him on picture was of a cold engine trying to start up, you know? Trying to oh, crank right. the because that's an interesting it goes and and then you're ready to roll right it's an interesting piece yeah it's an interesting piece because it changes time signature as well doesn't it through the piece it goes seven eight to four four yeah ah yes i was wondering what time signature it was at the beginning i was thinking that is not four four what well you know for you budding young composers out there don't steal that idea no, I'm just kidding. Steal like, it. Steal there's, it. There's, a, there's a, a really good rush that goes along once you get somebody rolling on the 7-8 and then you kick it into the 4-4. Four, four, just like, whoa, now we're doing it, right? Yeah. So that's – I'd recommend that, yeah. Go for did that you, all the time. Did you foresee the themes becoming as iconic as they did? I honestly – it has been pretty recent, like last few years, that I have come to realize that this thing had legs, you know, that, that people were still into it. And if it weren't for Scott really keeping up on this and keeping the level alive, like he has, and thank you, Scott, uh, you know, it just would have been a job I did a, a long time ago. Well, I have a theme song on my phone, the Super Saiyan, it's my ringtone. Just so you know. Oh, good. Yeah. Nice. So if I'm in a meeting or something, you know, when it gets to four four, they're about to hang up and give up on you. It was it was actually the Super Saiyan Vegeta theme that that got me onto YouTube because the I saw a, 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 
person on the internet doing just a single note at a time piano version of that. And it had like 11,000 views or something. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool that people are actually <laughs> into this score. Cause you know, when it first came out, uh, people were used to the Japanese score or the ocean dub. And so there was a lot of hatred online. But so I was, that's when I really opened my eyes. I was like, there actually is a community online that really loves this score. And, and they're getting, and, and they're starting to grow up and post things on YouTube. And so I thought, wow, what if I was it was, what if I was to put up some music with the original sense and, you know? Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was the Vegeta Super Saiyan theme. That was the first kind of, uh, sign to me. There's so many covers. I mean, it must be, I don't know if it's weird or mind boggling to think that there's so many people out there that remix your work. It's the most covered song ever. Yeah. Uh, I think Julius guy has that one with the SSJ. Yeah. Maybe Julius has that. (laughs) That's a good segue actually. So um, Julius with the, the super Saiyan three theme, how, what was your approach to writing that? You know, um, what we knew was that it had to be big. It had to be something new that goes beyond where it has gone before. And really, musically, that was that was the idea. Also, given um, the um, the character, um, it had to relate to previous themes, um, even as as close as the as the opening theme. So we tried to incorporate um, all these parts, and and um, actually, um, in the beginning, Bruce and I discussed that um, what would be the parts that that we would we should want to use. And then um, just got to work. And first, actually, I remember it's interesting that you asked because I I didn't even think about this before. That the first version was double tempo, um, oh. and it felt like they had a lot of energy and drive, um, and also of, of course the ascending um, progression. You know, it, it just keeps going up and up and up. Um, so that kind of took care of it, but it felt a little bit too actiony. So like, we thought, okay, well, this is maybe a bit, you know, too much of an action type of, of theme. So, um, so then I, I changed the, uh, the third measure, uh, to make it two measures actually. So that became three and four and then just still didn't feel right. And then everything kind of slowed down and then it felt much more like bigger, more epic, but still going up. So. Um, the drums, um, was the biggest driving factor and originally I wanted to mix it with, uh, and I did mix it with, uh, with more drums in it. I wanted to make it a more percussive piece. Um, and of course, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think we really used loops or anything pre-made. Um, and at that time it wasn't even that big of a deal that, you know, you, Oh, I never, you know, never, never, I never, never, never. never. Piece. Only one time I did it. You want that did? A, a track called yeah, but yours, Future That was more like a tape piece, tape loops, than it was uh, like a looping program, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in Pro Tools, like actually, it was very right. unconventional the way I did it. I was, it was lining up samples and- uh, Exactly. It, it, we, we had a guy in the studio named Trevor who didn't work on Dragon yeah, he Ball. Hated that but, piece. Oh, yeah. but he But he <laughs> loved, he loved to uh, do, he was a rave guy. And he had a collection of beats and, and I, uh, he gave me a zip disc full of stuff and I played around with it one time and made what, uh, is called future trunks. It's this 
techno-y electronic. <laughs> yeah, it's never like yeah. that, like really obscure Japanese underground <laughs> electronic music in the, <laughs> the early 2000s. So that was a, that was an interesting uh, influence. I remember I had great conversations with, with Trevor about electronic music and, and he had some interesting stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the drums for that, uh, I forgot exactly what I what I use. I think it was the um, two Rollins, um, JV ten eighty and the nine ninety, and sequence these drums and like play them by hand. And I really liked how they sounded. I wanted to make them bigger, and I had this big like orchestral timpani, you know, orchestral uh, bass drum type of uh, hits with it. But but they started feeling like too orchestral, too big. Um, and for the character. You know, you expect to hear more guitar and more the um, the what you typically would would hear for for the main character, right? So, um, so that didn't um, I ended up not using that, but but it still came out quite big because uh, I ended up slowing it down. No, not slowing it down, but just um, uh, doing it like a half time, and uh, I think that was the right the right decision there. Totally, yeah, that's that's a good call. Because that's another thing that's very iconic. Did you foresee that happening as well? Were you like, oh yeah, I've got this. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> I don't. I don't think you ever foresee anything becoming iconic. It's kind of the opposite. I mean, I and I always when we talk about this, when we get this question, I always say like, please don't get this the wrong way. I'm not uh, diminishing the the success of, of our own work and and of course the series. But honestly, for me, I started it as just another job. And mm. I finished with just another job. It's not because, you know, because this was my 21st of the same caliber. Um, but simply when you're scoring moves, you really, if, if you do things right, you don't care about fame, you don't care about how your music is going to live on its own, but what you care about is how it's going to support the show, how it how it's really helps to tell the story. And if what you see the reaction is that 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 people are are really celebrating the show and you know that your music is was part of creating that um then you're successful mm. and honestly you move on to the next project so you don't really normally you don't think about what if this you know like kind of got its own life and as, as, a, as a music piece and and what would happen then until of course someone um publishes your work yeah. Um, so well, I had I had so my inkling I will say because because uh, I I was probably the most connected on the internet look, looking at like what because the show was already iconic right like before we even touched it it was already huge and um and I got wind of like what a big deal uh, Spirit Bomb was and what a big deal going Super Saiyan was and so I knew ahead of time of. Uh, that those were big things. And so I was really excited that my first track was going to be working on the spirit bomb. And then when Mike was going to do the uh, super Saiyan theme for the first time, I was, I was pretty jealous actually, because <laughs> I knew that that was going to be a really big moment. And, uh, and he was nice enough. Dude, I was, I, I'm sorry. Was nice I was going to do the, I was going to do the what thing? The super Saiyan theme. He super was Saiyan jealous theme. of you. <laughs> yeah, he was nice enough to actually take me. We had this spot where we used to uh, go, like, sit outside and think about what we were going to do before we wrote anything. And he was nice enough to to take me out, out there and talk to me about what he was going to do for Super Saiyan before he wrote it. So, Are you talking so about actually, Vegeta's Super Saiyan? No, no, no. No, no, no. no. This, is Goku. Goku. Super this is the first Super oh, okay. Saiyan time ever. 
Because gotcha. I was making a big deal out of it because I was like, the guys, this is going to be big. Like, and so, so we talked about that one a little bit before <laughs> you scored it, which is cool. And that it came out really I, well. I've got to say, when we, when we were doing it, Scott was much more forward-looking on the episodes than I was. Man, I just took them as, you know, took them as they came, right, Scott? Yeah, like, I was looking oh, ahead yeah. a little bit. Another guy who ahead. really... Somebody who was even better than me about that was Ben Kasparek, who was ben, our editor. Very, very talented Ben Kasparek. Yes. Excellent music editor. He, mm. he, uh, he came on the show from, uh, he moved from Florida to work on this show. And he uh, was a fan before that. He was one of those guys who had ordered VHS tapes from disparate places. So he, he knew the whole This was whole his dream already. job when it was nobody's dream job. Right? Right. Yeah. None of oh, us yeah. knew about the show really before we started working, but Ben did. Right. And, uh, and, and his, his favorite episode of all time was when Gohan kills Cell. And uh, he did that episode all by himself with just editing. And when we reviewed it, like usually we make little changes to something or write a scene from here and there or add a little thing here and there to fix up transitions. But he had really worked on that episode. And I remember Mike and I reviewed it and we we're just like, perfect dude. And we shipped it as is just as he edited it. Well, yeah, it was really he, I remember fans. that episode. It was really, yeah. really well done. Really, dude, really well done. Dude, Ben was great. He had not only a talent for identifying the right pieces of music to put in there, but then he could, edit them in correctly to where it was seamless the whole way. He was fantastic. And we got to, we got to see Ben uh, just, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago, right? At, at Kamehakan. Kamehakan. Yeah. There's a picture of the four of us, yeah, on our yeah. SSJ page. He's mm. still a cool dude. Once you're cool, you're yeah. always cool, though, aren't you? That's not necessarily <laughs> true. <laughs> uh, so, Scott, uh, one of the themes that I love by you, man, is the uh, destruction theme. Is, yeah, that is such a cool theme. So um, tell me how you went about writing that. That was a funny story because uh, I don't know if some guys know this already, but um, that was the third take of Trunk's uh, soundtrack. Um, originally, they had this uh, trailer that, that Mike scored for Trunk's that, that had, you know, Trunk's slashing his sword and his name flashing on the screen. Yes, I and, saw that. And, and yes. So that's where the that's where that melody came from. And and originally I had gone in and written this little thing I called episodic Trunk's uh, that was supposed to be for, you know, more low-key moments or epic slow moments. Um, and then we, we scored the show uh, with those themes in there and they rejected us and said they wanted it like they actually told us that trunks was a villain and that he was going to turn bad or something <laughs> and 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 they wanted it heavier and so mike went in and wrote a bunch of industrial stuff and we turned that score in and they were like no we want heavy beyond belief and so so i so i was like well i could give you heavy beyond belief and so, so I didn't have a seven string guitar at the time, but uh, my brother-in-law did. So I borrowed a guitar from him and, and, I, uh, and then I recorded him doing an inhale scream through a, a guitar distortion pedal. It's like, Whoa. I don't know if you can hear it really well, but it's in the yeah, track. Could hear you, can hear really like well. a, you can hear a, scr a scream. I mean, like in the track, sometimes it's hard to hear, but there's actually, you know, you could hear the screaming going on in the track. And so uh, I just recorded 
you know, the metal stuff that I liked, I, 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 uh, and I went as heavy as I could. I didn't necessarily think it was right for the scenes and all that, but I just, I, I was like, you want heavy? Here it is. You know, let, um, let, let me ask you something, Scott. Is this at the same time, wasn't there a guy at Funimation that, uh, was in like a death metal band and he wanted his death metal band to be playing the Dragon Ball Z music at that particular time. I don't know about that. There was a, uh, so I, I just imagine there was some influence from th this fella and I'm there not was naming a guy names. named Evan Jones, who was a drummer, but he wasn't in a death metal band. He did have a band, but he, uh, they were him and another guy of uh, the Ginyu voice actor. Uh, so Del you Kelly. are naming names. So he, so he, 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 and uh, I think it's. Please forgive me if I got the name wrong. For the the Ginyu, it's one of the Ginyu voice actors. They, uh, they are the ones who organized the band soundtracks for the movies, and uh, so there was that whole thing. And they did. I think the Ginyu guy did produce music for the, for those movies um, that's in there beyond what's they had licensed from the bands. So there's that. But as far well, as I just, I imagine talks, that the the pressure to make it all ah, super crazy hard came from within. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. Awesome. Because honestly, that doesn't always make great soundtrack music. Yeah, but I was just like, you know, okay, we've, this is third take. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it and there's no way they can reject it. You know, here's the heaviest shit that I got. Yeah. And I love Beyond <laughs> Belief. Beyond Belief is one of my favorites to play. Thanks, man. Uh, even though I'm just going yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> it's an it awesome theme. I mean, I play it when I'm I'm at the gym working out. It's just it it amps you up. It really another yeah. thing. Another thing that was funny about that is next door there was a guy recording a commercial sound uh, thing for a commercial with something like air sir air sir and so and then and then like that was in the main control room and then I'm in this little office next door going boom 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 like loud as fuck. Can I say? Yes, you did swear. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> and 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 it, and it was funny because you know I was worried, and I think Bruce did say you know keep it down a little bit, but but uh, but he knew that I needed to you know record the guitars and the mics you know so that it sounded had good tone and all that. But it was funny because the guy who was singing all this cheesy music came out to me one time, and he's like, "Man, I really." dig the kind of uh progressive edgy stuff you're doing in there it's really you know it's like surprised um to hear that it was that's cool it was awesome the, um your i think the last thing that you wrote before you left uh falconer productions was the PyCon theme wasn't it it was that's like your swan swan song and it's like yeah. which is awesome it's like you just spazzed out on the keyboard like <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah the very ending uh, I didn't have that in there originally, um, and it wasn't even supposed to be part of the track. Like it was just um, Ben Kasparek that we were just talking about him earlier. He uh, he came to me and said, "Look, uh, PyCon has this swirling attack thing, uh, and we really need something for that." And so I was like, "Oh, okay." And I and it was funny because I used a technique that I learned from a, a tutorial. If I don't know if you knew Jordan Rudis is from from Dream Theater. But before he was in Dream Theater, uh, he did a he did a tutorial video for the keyboard that I have, which is the K twenty five hundred, and and uh, he has this little trick he did for arpeggiations, um, and I used that trick along with the patch that had arpeggiations on it already, 
And so it just made this crazy swirling arpeggio sound um, when I did that. And, and, and I tagged that to the end of the track so that Ben had something to use for the flying tornado move or whatever it's called. Um, See, I always thought you were trying to take a Philip Glass tune and turn it up to 11. <laughs> no, I actually wasn't thinking that. That's interesting, though. Huh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do you know who Philip Glass is? Is that reference yeah. uh, lost? Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know who Philip Glass is. Yep. Okay. I definitely know who he is. Yep. He's, um, he's quite legendary. Faze. Ira Glass's uncle. I like oh, those phase pieces. I didn't know that, though. Now you guys all worked on a villain theme, which is which is all cool. Um, Mike, I know you because you worked on all three villains, right? Freezer, Sal, and Boo. Yes. Yeah. How did you when you were writing these themes? How how did you approach each one differently? Because Freezer's more. Well, I gotta say, Boo was the the most obvious, right? Yeah. Because he's just like a piece of candy that comes out, you know, and you know he's evil, but it's just something a kid wants to play with. So it's, you know, it was very much just like a dink, 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 you know, mm. a toy to start with, right? And then over time, that, that thing builds up. Cell. Cell was like a pimp, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that had to be real, you know, groovy, like strutting down the street kind of thing. And uh, and then Frieza, I don't know what what was. Yeah, the two notes. What would we even consider to be wah, a Frieza? It was like Jaws it was like backwards. two notes. It was mainly two notes. I think it was, okay, it was more right. more, more ambience. I think. Um, you know what sticks out to me with Frieza bags sticks out to me the most. Yeah, uh, that's a great track. It's a very the, great, that's very good one track. that I love to hear. Yeah. I would say though that. Uh, even though on the surface and when, when he appeared, Boo was pretty much of a 50-50 person mix of, of childlike and evil. But I think there the challenge was that it was going on for so long and so mm. many iterations and evolutions. And you can't just keep the same music playing because it's at the core the same character. But, you know, through all those evolutions, the music had to relate to the previous one. So they had to be a unifying theme, obviously. But then the instrument, I don't know if you noticed, but the instrumentation changed, the, har the harmonies changed, the sounds changed. Everything starts changing as Boo is changing to like, what, like 20 episodes or whatever. Man. As it should, yeah. yeah well, yeah. And, and, and as we were doing it, and I, I was working with Julius a lot on this, that's, I think, the my favorite stuff, just because it gets to be so orchestral, so like big, you know, symphonic thing almost. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it's a mix of. There's a lot of electronica going on in there, but it's uh, to mm -hmm. me, because uh... it's the same theme underneath. That's the thing. Even as the oh, inspiration yeah. changes, it's the same theme. Because did you take uh, basically the theme that Mike made, Julius, and then kind of just? No, actually, we had two different themes, and right in the beginning we wrote two themes and we were trying to decide when to use which one and which one to evolve and um i ended up staying on the show and i i, I was the last one standing i guess yeah. <laughs> uh, with, uh, with that even beyond boo and the others and um 
and so actually it became not a headache but a really good challenge for me later what to do with those those themes and sometimes i would merge actually towards the end i would merge elements from from the two edit by editing and adding layers um but but there are two distinct themes for for boo um and we wrote that independently from each other and they both worked out um mm-hmm. i think became the the basis of more the actiony uh kind of more the action scenes and more the fight scenes um and kind of the heavier orchestral guitar makes um well and, then, and i was gone by super boo yeah i mean that was mm. all in your hands when that when that came up you know so, I, so yeah we had a bunch of we transitioned many times too right yeah what i yeah. loved about that um that theme though that there were so many other characters just that kind of these random not random but you know these guys who appear here and there and they had their own themes and then you have a relatively complex thing not not really complex because it's so complicated but because you always have this this weird character sometimes being cute and then you know blowing up a city right so this back and forth you had to musically paint right but then you interject this this third character and this fourth character that still has to work into this mix of, of with of, with a totally different emotion to what's going on right mm-hmm. mm. yeah yeah that like was the, a challenge I, actually scoring dragon ball in general i don't maybe i've spaced for a second but they would always do these reaction shots with with like goofy characters well, it, yeah. on the side and it was it was like should i ignore this or yeah should I change the feel of the music <laughs> I, here? I, I, hated I was to constantly them. struggling with that. Yeah, and, and that's probably yeah. more difficult to deal with in the music ed- editing, you know, than it is with, okay, I'm starting from a clean slate, right? To take I think it's, pieces and I think then plop in It's always stuff. difficult because when you have a really serious fight, when it's literally about the life of a million people, you know, <laughs> on screen, but they have a reaction instead of something like like this slaps that's some stupid humor thing, and that's the reaction. And like, whoa, just some, who changed the channel, you know? And then you have to change the composer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Scott, because you did a bit of cell as well. Did oh. your power go up? I don't know. You must have had a power cut. Yeah. Oh, well, it's back now. Anyway, um, so you, you did a bit of Imperfect Cell and you did a remix of uh, Perfect Cell as well, or Ultimate Cell. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So did you talk to Mike before you decided what you were doing or you just did your own thing? Cause... I actually didn't. <laughs> I think yeah, I he just... probably just did his own thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there was a scene where, yeah, Cell was returning. He, we thought he was dead and... And it was perfect sell, and I wanted to use Mike's theme, but I wanted to have this epic, like, scary thing. So that's basically uh, a rearrangement of his of his perfect sell theme, and I did it in a way that's almost unrecognizable because I I changed the speed of it. You know, I played it mm. really slow, and then I played it really fast. And it's, if you study that, you'll hear there's various uh, kind of rhythmic perversions of of mike's uh, perfect cell theme in there and then the imperfect cell stuff that's an interesting one because what i thought of is the imperfect cell theme is not actually what starts out in that track there's a it's not even in that track i think what i always thought of as the imperfect cell theme was just this short little motive motif with dun, 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 bum, 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 
and 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 the tracks on the CDs was a merging of a scene that I composed. I called it Shell Chase's Kids, and it has all this crazy frenetic piano stuff, and then something that I matched up the Cell's footsteps. And then it goes into kind of an edited thing with some of uh, Mike's earlier heroic music. And then it goes into kind of Mike's take on my music. He, he like listened to what I had done and then did something similar to it and, and developed his own thing from there. Hmm. Uh, but, the, but the actual kind of gangster beat that I had written for Imperfect Cell was uh, cut off from the original track that I had written. And it's about 10 I, seconds or something, isn't it? That little. Yeah, I think it's released somewhere in one of the yeah. uh, soundtracks releases. But yeah. yeah. Anyway. Actually, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but this just reminded me that everyone likes to talk about these big themes, you know, the ones that became famous and whatnot. And um, I don't know about you, but I had the most fun working on these incidental case random stuff where you know that you put so much whether it's composition or sound or something really interesting in it because you know there's not gonna get so much attention so you don't have to go like by the expectations but you can venture out a little bit and experience with interesting weird stuff uh, or um like yeah, yeah. The... I'm thinking like droid steel truck I love that one that's <laughs> awesome track because it goes from like Caribbean yeah. to heavy metal, like banjo music track. and stuff, right? There, I mean, it's I all of and and another one. Sixteen rips off sales tail is always that one's one awesome. That one got used a it lot all over the place. Yeah, that got used a my, lot. Series, yeah. My favorite Some, underrated track that I did was uh, a called Coronian Perosky, uh, and I think uh, there's a guy named Koi Koi who has it up as Coronian Perosky arrive or whatever. But it was this glitzy thing for when. They arrive in a pink helicopter and they get out and Caroni's throwing flowers and there's this big guy with a metal helmet and he's snorting and eating his helmet. And I did all this jazz. I got to show off my jazz chops in that track. And the fans, I think, have completely forgotten that track. But it's one of my favorites because I got to <laughs> do all the stuff I learned at UNT. Um, you see, I have, <laughs> I have, a, I have my list of, of those that... Uh, the um, the the great Surya man. Ah uh, yes. Uh, that little kind of uh, those few episodes. I actually had a lot of fun working on those. I was trying to make like an over the top '80s adventure music, John Williams type of you know big orchestrated uh, triple brass action, like you know that kind of stuff. And and I did. And and if you listen to it, it's actually pretty. Like given the short amount of time that we had and the samples that we had access to, it's a pretty and the lack you know, of an actual thing. orchestra to record it with. Well, that's what I'm saying. That that yeah. Yeah, given yeah. what we had at the time, right. it's actually a, a pretty well. Um, like you know, I think it's a it's a pretty good good track and and it worked for the scene. So that that's the most important. But actually, the first track that I I did was the um, uh, space room, mm. and I still. I remember the space room. I don't listen to I don't let, listen to to my own music much, if at all. But but that track um, I've heard a few times since, um, and I really enjoyed actually listening to that because um, I got to put in a lot of ambient, nice little sound design, little details like little pads, layering stuff, and that's that's my favorite thing to do anyway in my own music and and um, and I think it 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 has some nice depth, and I guarantee you that you know, 99 out of 
uh, 100 people will is like, okay, it's just some ambient thing in the background. <laughs> but actually, it I took like a that. lot of sound design consideration to, to put that I together. like that track. It has a nice feel to it. Like, yeah. It, it, whoa, yeah. Space room. Yeah. Some Space of that room. ambient stuff is really, really good. I think I, I was listening to the final atonement theme, although that's not really what it is. But I think uh, there are birds or something in, in that mic. Did you compose that? The the one that plays while in the episode final atonement, basically because there's a lot of parts of that episode where there's not really much talking. So the so that theme plays. It's almost like it's on a loop. Um, I think it's the one that we used in between songs in our in our live set. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, the pad. Yeah, it's yeah, quite yeah. a it's quite an oldie. I think you, you um yeah it is. It, it goes back to like the freezer saga. I think there's now people around like <laughs> Koi Koi, and like a lot of um fans that have somehow found the ability to be able to take out a lot of that unreleased material and release it. I think you're quite well aware of it, Scott. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't Amazing they, job. I don't know how they do it. I think they get the the, the sound. They somehow get the the audio from the Blu-rays, I think, the Japanese and the English. Does and it have something to do with with taking the left and right, inverting? Yeah, uh, and then they cancel the out. Waves I don't know if they do that. That's really hard to pull off with those. I think it's mostly about grabbing. I mean, that is a technique you can use, but I think it's really difficult to pull off in practice. Um, yeah, I think well, I can't what they're doing is because we had a lot of stuff mixed in the center. Yeah. Yeah. So I think mostly what they're doing is they're taking a surround mix and they're grabbing like the stereo tracks and then sound effects might be in the center and other places. And so they're able to, you know, grab the 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 channels that are least affected. So the left and right being the purest uh, music and then right. and then dialogue center that... channel, right? Well, so dialogue is always right, center. Right. So if you remove the center, you have the music and some of the sound effects left. But of course, the sound effects uh, at that time, the original Japanese sound effects, a lot of them were, if not all of them, mono. Um, and so if you have stereo music, but mono sound effects, then you can separate those based on phasing. So you take out the common information and that's the sound effects. You have the different information that's the music you keep that. And, and you hey, have some let, me, let me break it down into something even simpler. Like you're familiar with uh, these machines for karaoke, right? Where you can put in your favorite CD that has lyrics and it'll remove it, right? Yeah. Usually the main lyrics are in the center of the mix, right? And the rest of the mix is kind of spread out in a stereo way, right? So if you take your left side and your right side and you duplicate them, and then to invert them and put the right side over the left side in the inverse and the opposite over here, then what happens is what's in the center gets canceled out and what's not in the center remains in the mix. Is that? It's a great way to destroy a mix. Um, I, I don't think they're doing a lot of that, to be honest. It is a technique you can use, but I think most of it is just grabbing the surround mix, removing the center channel. Because like Julius was saying, a lot of the sound effects are mono, so they might be just on center channel. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't actually tried this before. Or, or if they're not just on center channel, they could be evenly if, distributed throughout, right? Yeah, they could be. And if that's the case, it's more difficult to get rid of. And you would need to do something like Mike is talking about, where you invert. But you're also going to destroy mono instruments that are in the mix. So that's mm -hmm. a kind of funky way to do it yeah 
It sounds like something you'd need to dedicate a lot of time to do. Mm-hmm. So it's it must be pretty so nice. kudos to those guys for yeah, doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're they're dedicating their lives to trying to release some of the unreleased material that you guys worked on. Yeah, yeah. No, it's real cool. They're they're heroes of ours. <laughs> I'm sure you're really, heroes. Yeah, totally. You're heroes to them. You guys did a gig as well. You could you did a concert together, didn't you? I was watching. Uh, it. Uh, we've done we've done three, three live shows. Oh, now. you've done one. I watched one on YouTube. It was very good. Oh, you need to watch the Thanks, others. <laughs> Include snippets in, in you can take uh, snippets of our shows and put it in here because we're proud of them. Yeah, I could. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's a good idea. Cause um, did you guys have to get together and practice beforehand? Yeah. Practice yeah. For a few hours. yeah. <laughs> How was that possible? Cause I mean, you're, you live in Texas, Mike, uh, Okay, I'll, I'll give you the, the quick history on it. When when we did our first interview with uh, with Geekdom, yeah, uh, the idea came up that maybe we should put a performance together, right? Right. And it, you know, we we hadn't seen each other in a long, long time, but it turned out we had a great time hanging out together. And it was like, yeah, why not? Why don't we do this? And uh, and so our first thing was that we went out to seattle and stayed at scott's right that's when we first started putting this stuff together right and and that was in preparation for the first KamehaCon. and so then we spent what a long weekend over at scott's place and then uh, a couple months later these guys all came down to dallas irving was where uh, the KamehaCon was and we got to rehearse it a little bit and i think we had what like 20 your place yeah, my place. So, uh, twenty-five minutes of show at that point. So, so what you have to realize <laughs> is that um, these were just tracks that we wrote usually by ourselves, or we took. You know, uh, there was not a lot of dedicated collaboration. I might might think it like looking at how we've credited things or whatever, but mostly we worked alone. You know, and we might version something off of some what somebody else did just to make it fit the scene. But so getting uh, these tracks wait, arranged wait, wait, wait. to be you're, live you're about Hold on, Scott. On the show. So you're, I'm talking about you're on the saying show. Yeah. On the show, originally, yeah, there was no intention of ever playing anything live, right? Exactly. So, and so that was way outside of the bounds. So we had to create new arrangements for this stuff uh, for live. And we actually wrote new material to kind of extend things and make it a little more interesting or just to change it, just to, just to have it be a little more exciting, different. Um, uh, so there was a whole lot of work in just creating live versions of these tracks. It wasn't just practicing, like we were doing arranging work. And of course we had to implement that also for the performance itself. So tracks can be uh, played seamlessly that we're not doing just a playback from the machine, but there's really a live element. If we feel like you want to repeat a part or, you know, accidentally get lost or anything like that, that we can find their way. So it's 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 more than just a band coming together and playing because of the nature of the instrumentation that's, you know, close to impossible unless you have like eight people on stage. Um, and so, yeah, so we had to put things into uh, Ableton Live and, and trigger it and then practice the triggering itself. and. And I think the biggest challenge is that, um, I mean, I, Mike, you play at live shows and, and, and I play at live shows and we know how much 
practicing really matters before every show and even once you know your band it's still healthy to 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 practice especially when you have a new new material you have to and that's not given to us because like you said we're in a triangle like three different locations and and uh we just can't i mean even with zoom and it's great and low latency but it's still not good enough for musicians to really play, play through the real time and so that's always a challenge when we have a show we have to actually get there two two days at least at least but that's really the very minimum um in advance and you know try to practice on our own before that and then practice together which also is you know changes everything of course again how we do things and then um we hope that the show comes out right (laughs) so you can imagine we we might show up to a convention and they have a lot of things planned for us like you know we want you to do a meet and greet over here and you know we want you to come and show up at this thing you know Thursday and Friday or whatever, and then do table time where you, and it's like, we only have time to rehearse before the show. It's going to be solid rehearsal before the show. And then by the way, we haven't played together for months, right? Uh, It's a miracle that we made those shows, I think. It's, (laughs) how did we do that? (laughs) And if any convention organizer is watching this, um, and if, if you want us to play for you, then, just expect that our number one request is a rehearsal room, because we really and the need... time to use it. Because one time we rehearsed in a in a hotel room on like a seventieth floor or wherever that was. It was, it was oh, my hotel room. <laughs> yeah, it was yours. But yeah. that's that's not the way to do it because literally it was like cables everywhere and it's just you know. It's oh, we were nice. very lucky that we didn't call get the police called on us. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised, surprised we did it. Yeah. So what's the uh, what's the plan now? Are you guys doing? I know you've done some stuff for Call of Duty, Scott, and you've worked on films, Julius. But have you? Would you guys? Um, do you guys prefer working on television series or film work, or would you do video games? I mean, that's a billion dollar industry. I'm going to go ahead and speak for both of them and say, yeah, whatever you got. You'd be down for whatever, Mike. <laughs> whatever you got, throw it my way, please. Um, I haven't, I haven't done much in the way of uh, professional composing. I, I mean, I wrote a piece for a guy. I think I paid a thousand dollars or something back in what year was that? 2015. Uh, and then in 2002, I did a soundtrack for a game. But mostly I've been for the last, since 2005, my main gig has been engineering work. I've been C++, like I do audio uh, software engineering. So not just like my work for Call of Duty was not composing. I I owned uh, taking the PS4 audio code and the uh, Xbox One audio code and transferring it so that it, translating it so it could work on a PS3 and Xbox 360. So there was a lot of audio know-how in there, uh, but it was mostly yeah, C++ and talking to sound designers and composers and kind of uh, making all the tech work. Um, and I've, I've written music for Microsoft. I've written music for Roland, the companies that I work for just to demo technology. So sometimes my music will pop up in strange places. Uh, there is where where can people find the video with your guitar patch, your classical guitar patch that you 
creative. Oh, uh, for Roland, I made a, a thing called Terra Guitar uh, in, in combination with uh, Jerry and, uh, Jeremy and Julian Soul. Uh, it's on Roland Cloud's uh, YouTube channel. There's a video of me demonstrating a thing called Terra Guitar, which uh, it it's sounds like a classical cool. guitar. It's, that it's was a really cool. fun project. Yeah. Uh, that was a super fun project. Maybe, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe get to do more and, stuff and like that in the future. Let, let me speak know. for Julius for a second. His Forgotten Future stuff is incredible. It's wonderful, wonderful. Oh, music. yeah. I've heard it. It's amazing. All right. It's amazing. Yeah. You, if you don't have a copy of the CD, you got to have that too. And I, I, I implore everyone to you go out there and purchase one because this, it's a work of art in itself, you know, and well, looking at it problem. while you're listening to music, to the music that he composed, it's fantastic. You can now tell that a lot more time you, is, is, has been put into that, uh, Julius, like your forgotten. Yeah, no, thank you. yeah, um, yeah. It's really, really no, good stuff. Um, as for your question about film and, and, and television, um, for me, it was a little bit different. I parted uh, with um, Falconer Productions um, in 2006, I believe. Yeah, 2006. And so I was, I was um, basically working on the, on the Centex releases and, and engineering those and mastering and whatnot, editing and doing a bunch of, of that, that work. And then, um, and then when we parted ways, I decided to um, to really focus on um, rebuilding my music production company that I had before I ever um, joined uh, the gang here uh, back in Europe, uh, where I'm from originally. So I kind of rebuilt that, and I did a, a good amount of scoring, uh, movies, television shows, Hollywood advertising, all that stuff, to the point where I was very happy that I've had, I had had that experience and I would do it again, but I was also happy to stop doing that. And in 2012, I, um, I actually changed careers to a degree because I went into education. So I'm now teaching how to do the job that we used to do, uh, to the composers of the, of the future and the sound designers of the, of the future. Um, but Not speaking the of the future, future. yep. Um, at the same time, I, I really focused on my own um, kind of music releases and concepts, like you, like you mentioned. And I do shows and uh, try to um, do some interesting, cool stuff. Um, just through in this background for for today, that was a show that I did last year um, at the LA Convention Center, um, where the audience was controlling the music. So this was like a forgotten future type of show, but uh, with a twist that uh, the audience was using their cell phones to control the music that was playing uh, my music, right? But they were controlling different parts and different plugins and filters and elements. And I was trying to react to what the audience was deciding to do. So like an interactive show. And so I'm, um, That's super I, cool. uh, that is yeah, super cool. Just enjoy cool. networking for the industry. I got to say that, uh, you know, I've written a lot of, not a lot, but, you know, I've been writing since then. But my favorite writing was doing it for Dragon Ball Z. And, and I think a lot of it had to do with the constraints that are put on you when you're writing to picture. And it doesn't matter if it's TV or film, but, you know, if you've got time constraints that you've got to live within and 
you know, you've got to write for a character, you've got to write for a scene, you've got to write for a mood, all these things. Those kind of uh, constraints that are put on you can probably, for me, I think they bring out the best, you know? It's like not, hey, you need to write this, but you need to write for this and it needs to work for this. And I really, really like that challenge. I found that really attractive as, as, as well. Um, for me, it got a little bit too much when your livelihood depends on composing pretty much 24 uh, seven, then, then that starts, starts influencing things in your brain a little bit differently about composition. And it's, I'm not, not saying it's, it's, it's bad or wrong, but I had way too many of my own ideas, um, filed away somewhere for, for the future um that i didn't ever see happening because i was busy working uh, for directors and for producers who you might have heard of uh the movie um zohan um it's an adam sandler movie that that, that came out i saw it recently it's brilliant um yeah um 21 versions of the same piece over two days 21 versions really <laughs> yeah wow. that's what it takes so you know when those are the kind of constraints that they that they tell you very nicely uh, what they expect and then you write five versions and they say, yeah, we kind of like that, like that. And how about we do this? And how about we redo what we had you know, done in the past and then bring it back anyway, even though it was rejected one time because you were right, but we're not going to say that. Um, <laughs> and so the 22nd version and that makes it into the movie, then, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not a complaint, but it's a very different lifestyle than what we had with Rainbow Z. And certainly, you know, I get, speaking to that, had. Julius, I, I got to say, uh, I think that one of the things that we didn't do too much of with Dragon Ball Z was write by committee. And that, now that happened a little bit, there there were mm -hmm. some times where it was like, no, it doesn't feel right to me. You got to do that. But for the most part, we would go our separate ways, write something, and then it would be like, yeah, that works, right? Exactly. So how yes. can you take it further if you become your own director? Right. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, what's Torres? Uh, one of these directors writes his own music. Oh, Gets away with John, it. John Carpenter, Carpenter wrote. John uh, Carpenter, there you go. Yeah. The creative um, arts is a really interesting in industry because you never promise tomorrow, really. It's not, you're not guaranteed an income usually on a week by week basis. I suppose unless you're working on a series like you were with Dragon Ball Z. Um, so you're always working towards unemployment is what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is it ex exciting and terrifying at the same time? Cause you're not knowing exactly where your next paycheck is going to come from. It is Julius, you have done the most of that. Yeah. Go ahead. The, it's very simple uh, answer. Um, you have to diversify, especially these days. So just to say, you know, I'm a composer, I'm willing to work on TV shows, but maybe if you throw me a movie, then good luck. That's just not going to happen. Um, but when I was running my, my, my music production company, um, even though it was a music production company, and that was my main discipline and favorite, you know, part of, 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 the, of the activity, but I was doing a lot of mixing. I worked with every kind of bands you can imagine. In 2010, I launched one of the very first, um, not automated, but online mastering uh, business when they were just nowhere. There was no land or anything like that kind of crap that, you know, these days you upload and AI masters the crap out of it. 
So everything's right, nice. right. You, it wasn't an automatic mastering. You were actually yeah. getting the the work and mastering it, and then sending it back, right? I hired a company who created the the interface for me, which at that time, before HTML5, wasn't as easy running server-side Java, uh, even just to find a server who would support that, um, where a user can literally drag their folder or their music files into the interface, and that would upload, create a folder, notify me that someone uploaded their mix, so I can, it downloads for me, and all I have to do is drag it into Pro Tools, master it, uh, put it back and it sends a notification to them that your master is ready to, to download, um, you know. So what I was getting at though is nowadays, isn't it more of an automated thing where they just, you know, you upload it and they throw a multiband compressor against it and send it back to you and that's. There's even an app now that, there's an app now that does automated mixing even. You can yep. just get the app and do automated mixing. It's actually funny you guys are saying Throw your sins into it. Two days from now, um, I'm going to be on a panel. Uh, it, this is an AES, Audio Engineering Society, um, online event. And the panel is about AI's role in music production and audio production. And there are going to be six panelists. And I think one of them is not very happy about AI stuff. The other one is really not happy. That's me. Um, and then... <laughs> And then there are a couple, couple of professionals from um, Isotope, uh, who is behind a lot of the DI initiatives, um, and a couple of people who have their own companies that do AI-based um, audio tools. So wish me luck with, with that debate. Yeah, but, man. Hey, good yeah. luck. Hey, good can, luck. can I tune in? Sure. Send an invite. Yep. Yeah, please do. should post a link. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually, as of uh, about a week ago, uh, in between jobs and uh, and one of the jobs that I noticed I haven't I didn't apply for it but one of them that I saw online was for a company that that's how I knew about it, it was because there's a, a company that has a product that you do automated mixing and they're they're looking for a C++ engineer <laughs> <laughs> well I think that's a that's a good place to wrap up but I uh, do you guys have social media Where's the best place where everyone can like follow you and your music for, for one? Well, wh why don't we give you a link to our? Uh, I, I think honestly, our YouTube page is the best place to find the. We you need a Facebook page, and we want people to sign up for that. Yeah, uh, and I don't know. I don't think we even have our YouTube videos on our Facebook page because we're terrible with social media. So we need to clean up our act there. Well, social media, being off social media is kind of a good thing. It it can get you into a negative headspace, I think, if you're on it too much. A lot of negativity. Well, we're not yeah. on it too much. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll give you the links to the YouTube and Facebook. Yeah, there. yeah, and I'll post it all on Spotify and YouTube and wherever else this podcast ends up. It ends cool. up on a lot of and sites. And we've got our, individual, we've got our and, individual pages too. Like I have yeah. my Morgan Studios stuff and uh, – which has I a lot of. A, I have an out of date YouTube stuff thing, but it's got some videos on there. Yeah. I have a Forgotten Future online experience where you can remix my the layers of my music and the images change with it, and you can create your own experience. That oh, sounds wow. stupid. Cool, man. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Such a buzzkill, Mike. Oh, right. God. <laughs> well, I'll wrap up here. Um, okay. So. Thanks everybody for tuning in. 
Uh, make sure you share, like, and subscribe, and obviously listen to all three of these amazing guys' music. Uh, go back and listen to the the stuff that they did at Dragon Ball Z as well. Uh, yeah, these are three amazing dudes that don't get the props they deserve, in my opinion. So that's the show, Thanks, everyone. Man. Stay safe.